We will be in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Last time we were in Ezekiel chapter 10 and we studied Yahweh's actions leading to his final departure from the temple. At the end of our study last time, we saw Yahweh over the east gate of the temple complex and he was about to formally depart from the temple. At the end of chapter 11, what we will see is that Ezekiel's vision concludes with Yahweh leaving east of Jerusalem, which is the culminating final judgment against Jerusalem's idolatry. But before this final departure, Yahweh leaves one final word for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which is our focus for tonight. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 11, and we will read verses 1 through 13. And then we'll pray uh, for God's blessing upon us this evening. So Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were twenty-five men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah the son of Azer, and Pelatiah the son of Benaniah, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity, and who give wicked counsel in the city, and who say that the time, that time, is, not, is, the time is not near, near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Thus says the Lord, So you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city, and you have filled its street with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I, give, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God, and I will bring you out of the midst of it, and, you will, and, you will, and, uh, and give you into the hands of foreigners, and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword, and I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord." This city, shall be to, uh, this, sh- this city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat, of it, uh, meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statute, nor obeyed my rules, but you have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it shall come to pass, while I am prophesying, that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Let us pray. Father, we come before you with this final word that you speak to the inhabitants of Jerusalem through your prophet Ezekiel. Lord, this word is a sobering word that is to bring us before you humbly, to bring us out of the spiritual blind stupor that we are naturally as sinners before you. Father, we ask now that as we look upon these texts, as we apply this text to our own lives in the midst of this congregation, Lord, that you would bring us out of the same spiritual stupor, that you would give us eyes to see and behold wondrous things from your law, but that your law would be implanted in our hearts so that we are fully embedded, fully subscribed, fully involved, as it were, with your word and it's in your word implanted in our souls so that we bring forth you glory, that we bring forth fruit in our lives, and that you be glorified in all things. Father, help us this evening. Help us to receive this word of rebuke and criticism cheerfully and happily. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Brothers, people love to make their opinions known, right? People love to make their opinions known. Especially with the advent of social media, whenever people come to the cusp of a new year, we are flooded with personal opinions on what has transpired in the past year. With more people home glued to their screens and with historic events in our nation exploding on our feeds all the time, the year 2020 has given us more and more fodder than ever to make our opinions known. Brothers, we have all lived through this past year And I think all of us can agree that this year has been relatively worse than last year. Amen? Amen. Last year at this time, there was a social media craze called hashtag 2020 vision. 
where people would cast their vision, as it were, of what the year 2020 and the following decade would hold for them. But now, after everything that has happened this past year, we are not as optimistic as we first were. We are not as triumphant, triumphant as when we first started out this year. Our perceptions of the future can easily change, can it not, as God brings judgment upon us. In chapter 11 of Ezekiel, Yahweh's final and authoritative word has this same effect upon the proud in Jerusalem. This is what I want us to see tonight from this passage. For those who are blind in pride, for those who are blind in pride, God's final word of judgment humbles us. It humbles us to see correctly. So then, in order for us to see how this word of judgment humbles us, I have three points to help bring out this point. God's word is personal. God's final word is pointed. And God's final word is powerful. Those are our three points for tonight. And of course, they alliterate. What can you do? So then, God's word is personal. For our, so for our first point, I want us to see that God's final word of judgment is personal. And by personal, I simply mean it is directed towards people. In verses 1 to 4, we read, The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were twenty-five men. And I saw among them Jaazaniah, the son of Azer, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaniah, princes, princes of the people. And he said to them, meaning Yahweh, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give counsel, wicked counsel in the city and who say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So in this introduction to this vision, Ezekiel is lifted to the inner gates and he beholds this group of 25 men. These men may or may not have been the 25 men that we saw in chapter 8 who are worshiping the sun god, Tammuz. Nevertheless, this, the, the image presented in, uh, in this passage is that these men are congregating in the inner east gate that leads out to the outer courtyard. Among these men, Ezekiel recognizes a ja- Jaazaniah, and we should note that this Jaazaniah is different from the other Jaazaniah in chapter 8. We see that by reference to the father's name. And he also sees another person he recognizes, a Pelatiah. So Jaazaniah and Pelatiah. It makes sense, both uh, these men being princes uh, of the people, it makes sense that Ezekiel would recognize these individuals because Ezekiel was a member of the upper class in Jerusalem before his exile. Jaazaniah and Pelatiah were part of Ezekiel's social class, possibly even companions of Ezekiel. That's why he knows them. Though they were friends of Ezekiel, Yahweh will have a very different opinion of these men than what Ezekiel first exhibits. After Judah was judged and sent into exile the first time, there was a vacuum that was created for these new Jerusalem elites to take the power. The wealth and property left after this first wave of exiles was taken over by these men. So then we could say that Jaazaniah, Pelatiah, and possibly this other group of men are the new money elites of Jerusalem. They're the new money elites. In verse 2, Yahweh goes on to describe how these new money men, uh, uh, in various fashions, if you would, please, please look at the text. See how God describes these men. Son of men, these are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel to the city and who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron and we are the meat. Yahweh describes these three in three descriptive phrases. They devise iniquity, they give wicked counsel, and they boast in their speech. That third one in particular is what we'll uh, hone in on. The quotation in verse 3 is fairly interesting from an exegetical point of view. These men were saying that they weren't going to build houses, but it isn't immediately sure what they mean by this. The question asked about this verse is why these men would not want to build homes. Why wouldn't these men want to build homes in Jerusalem, especially after the first Babylonian siege in 597, about six or seven years ago, or or ten years ago at this point? Uh, Six, I'm sorry. 
personally, I, I, I take this as a statement, these men's statement, this, this, this phrase that they're using as a statement of smug complacency. Smug complacency. Though Jerusalem was still well protected at this point, it was weakened after its first encounter with Babylon. When these elites say it's not time to build houses, they are effectively saying, we don't need to secure the city, even though they were more susceptible to foreign invasion. This reading is supported by the elites calling, them, uh, calling themselves the meat inside the cauldron of the city. To preserve meats in those days, you would heavily salt them and place them in this sealed pot or a cauldron to protect it from flies and magnets and things like that. These new elites had become smug because they thought themselves as the choice meats of Israel. And Jerusalem was a suitable cauldron for their protection. The idea, was, uh, the idea we are to see is that because they weren't carried off to exile, and because they got all the spoils from the siege, surely God or the gods uh, esteems them and esteems them more, and they will be protected from harm. And because of this smugness and this complacency on these men's part, these new money elites, the Lord tells Ezekiel in verse 4 to prophesy against them. So then, brothers, Yahweh's final word is personal. It's directed to a particular people. It is directed to the complacent and smug leaders, the new money elites of Jerusalem. These men were blind in their pride, and God's word was going to open their eyes to the reality that was before them. Now, brothers, it is fairly easy to see how we could apply this text in our day, right? It's not all that difficult. For those who are proud, it is God who directs his message to them. Easy, right? But I have a question that I think we should ponder. Who are the proud in our day? Who are the proud in our day? You see, we have a divinely revealed target here. It's not as easy today. Who are the proud in our day? What group is smug and complacent in their own self-worth? In light of this last year, there, there are a thousand one categories of people and opinions that could get this title. Amen? In the political realm, the person who may have supported Trump could easily get the one blind in pride. Even after he lost, there was this foolhardy campaign to stop the steal. But I'm fair. What about Biden? Even though he won, the most adamant Biden supporter has to admit that he comes off just a little bit geriatric, right? Just a little bit. It's ludicrous to be proud in, in either of these choices. And yet this is the state of our nation. We love or hate the other guy. In regard to the pandemic, we had more hysteria over the issues of mass and safety protocols than what is logically necessary. For those who love or hate masks, there is this line drawn in the sand. If you don't believe and behave exactly as I do about this pandemic then you either aren't a thoughtful person or you hate science or you're just one of those sheeple who, who loves Big Brother. When it came to the killing of George Floyd and all that took place afterwards, our nation was driven further apart. You were either labeled racist if critical about some proposed legislation, some lunatic legislation, or you were either labeled a cultural Marxist for wanting any kind of change in public policy. So with all this, brothers, we come back to our question. Who's the smug one? Which side of the aisle is the one blind with pride? That has been the ongoing struggle for our nation. And I'm saying that for our nation. They're trying to answer this question. Who's wrong? Who's right? Who's blind in their pride? As Christians... Praise God for this reality. We believe in an objective, authoritative standard. The scriptures, God's holy word. And it can teach us, and it does teach us, how to navigate these matters in our nation. But with that said, brothers, 
Though there are clear ethics and principles from scriptures and that we can know them, that does not mean that there is a uniform Christian conscience that looks and behaves the exact same way in every same circumstance. Brothers, I would love to say that the Christian church in America stood united and faithful during this time of year, during this past year. But we follow the pattern of this nation and we split along ideological lines, putting unbiblical restraints on our fellow churches and on fellow believers. What we saw in Christendom was you were either in this camp or that camp. No nuance allowed. You either gathered for worship or you didn't. You either masked up or you didn't. You were either woke or anti-woke. You either supported Trump or despised him. No nuance allowed. There were, a thousand, there were thousands of ways in which people spoke their opinions on these matters. And it just led to more and more lines of frustration and division in the church. Praise God for this, brothers. Relatively, our church grace was left unscathed from this needless division. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Churches have went under. Churches have, been, uh, have gone disfunct. Churches, churches are still feeling the, the, the sting of being split over these lines. But brothers, even though we were left relatively unscathed in this division, that does not mean that our people within our body it's not, it does not mean that our people within our own body, our brothers and sisters, did not feel the weight of division from our brothers and sisters inside this church. You see, we could be in the same spiritual stupor of the Jerusalem elites, brothers. We could easily think that we are the choice meat when in fact we are the ones who need humbling. I think that this passage can serve us well, brothers, by asking in what ways have we been blind in pride this last year? Though our church was left unscathed from all this needless division from the past year, this does not mean that we handled the trials of this past year in the godliest of ways. We might believe that because we're doctrinally pure or a family church, that this will protect us from the big issues that plague modern evangelicalism, but not us. No, no, we're free from that. But brothers, this is wishful and foolish thinking. Practically, we all must mature in how we interact with one another and how we present our opinions, whether in person, which I'm guilty of this, or on the internet, which in my opinion has been one of the most devilish of problems for our local body. It has been the most devilish of problems for our local body. Because of how people posted things online or spoke about matters in person, and again, brothers, I'm guilty of this one. I've spoken needlessly on, on things I should not have spoken. Because of how people have presented these matters, some of our members, though they might not have communicated it to us, some of our members may have communicated this kind of Christian tribalism. If you don't agree with me, you're wrong. If you don't agree with me, you're not as holy, you're not as biblical, so forth and so on. In doing so, we become like the smug leaders in Jerusalem. They had no reason to build. They had no reason to change their ways because they didn't think they were wrong. If you don't Agree with me, you're not holy, you're not biblical. But that is the smug, elitist view of these Jerusalem leaders that God is bringing a word of judgment upon. Brothers, many of you are on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and some of you have posted your opinions on these divisive matters. Even if I agree with your, the content of your post, even if I agree with what you say, the way that it has been said and communicated is sorely lacking in biblical Christian values. I tell you this kindly, brothers and sisters, and those who are at home, if you are watching, 
just because no one hasn't to- because just because no one has told you in person that your words cause them trouble, it does not mean that your words haven't caused them to stumble. Maybe no one has challenged you on these things. Maybe because they're shame, because they feel unholy in comparison to, to your bigoted, elitist view of yourself and your opinion. Maybe no one has challenged you, but your words could be damaging your brother or sister's conscience. Brothers, and I'm not talking about how the world thinks of your posts or your opinions. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about how your fellow members, fellow Christians, the people that you have covenanted with in Christ, I'm talking about how your words have made them feel when they read your posts on social media or or make that quick comment in the hall criticizing how they think. It is through the loose tongue that destroys and burns down churches. Brothers, our lives are going to get more difficult in the future. I wholeheartedly believe that the Christian church will experience more and more frustrating and divisive times in coming generations. And if this year has shown us anything, it has shown us that we are not spiritually mature enough to weather that storm when it comes. We are not. We are not prepared. Particularly in the cases where we have to deal with our fellow members who have a differently calibrated conscience than our own. Brothers, we need to humble ourselves and recognize that though we have the freedom to hold and promote our opinion, and we do have that freedom, brothers, we need to ask, does this build up my brother at my local church? Does this needlessly sting the conscience of my fellow brother or sister? So then, brothers, as we wrestle with these things, we must submit to Scripture. As Paul says in Romans 15, Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength, those who are weak, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. Brothers, it is not about your opinion. It is about the well-being of your fellow brother in Christ. Crucify your opinion. Lift up your brother. And again, Paul mentions, says a similar command in Colossians 2. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. What does he say? Put on a heart of compassion. Of kindness, of humility gentleness and patience bearing with one another bearing with one another bearing with a person who has a different opinion of you on how to approach the biblical way of doing things and forgiving each other as the lord has exhibited and has shown you so then brothers as we go forward in this new year, may we keep this attitude that Paul presents here of a truly imbibed Christian ethic in how we communicate with one another. That is what will fortify this church. It's not about dotting our I's and and, uh, crossing our T's theologically, brothers. There is a place for that. But that's the skeletal structure of our church. The lifeblood comes in love. If we will not love in the simplest of things, we are doomed to fail. Brothers, may we keep this attitude and these commands. That's what these are. These are imperatives by the apostle himself. Let us keep these commands with us in our hearts when we log into Facebook or Instagram or any personal conversations with one another. Brothers, be very careful that you are not boasting that you are the meat in the cauldron when the Lord perceives you as something far different. Just because God spared us turmoil this past year, and praise God for that, this does not mean that he won't discipline us later for it. Keep that in mind, and let that humble us in our spiritual blind stupor. This brings me to my second point for the evening, brothers. God's word is pointed Verses 5 to 12. 
like an arrow hitting the bullseye. God's word of judgment is sharpened and strikes at the particular sins of his people. For the leaders of Jerusalem, Yahweh commands Ezekiel to prophesy in verse 5 these words. Ezekiel chapter 11 verse 5. And the spirit of the Lord fell upon me and he said to me, says the, Say, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel. For I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron, but you shall not be brought out, but you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God, and I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. This city shall not be your caution, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Brothers, I want to see just immediately, I want to see how Yahweh undermines the pride of these rulers. Uh, grammatically, syntactically, this is what commentators and biblical scholars call a, a, a disputation. Is that literally Yahweh takes the, 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 the content of what these rulers are saying and he disputes it as a lawyer. He's saying, you say this, I say no, here's why. In verses five and six, Yahweh five and six, Yahweh gives ev- evidence for why their boasting is in vain. First, Yahweh perceives their mind, for I know the things that come into your minds. And then, second, Yahweh presents the evidence against any claim to protection or esteem from His hand. You have multiplied the slain in the city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. As we saw in chapter eight and nine, idolatry has the the eventual effect of producing violence in society and corruption in courts. Most likely, these rulers subjected their people to corrupt courts and the rulers reap the benefits from their oppression. So then Yahweh makes it clear to us here, he's not going to protect these leaders. They don't have his divine sanction upon them. He's not going to protect them. He has rather set his scope upon these sinners because they have tormented the faithful followers, the true meat the true people in the city. As we saw in chapter 9, the people who are moaning and groaning over the, the abominations that were taking place, we are to see a similar thing. The people who were in power, the people uh, who had the prestige, the elites, the new money elites here in Jerusalem have been decimating the true people of God, the chosen people of God. So then after laying out this evidence here, Yahweh brings his counterpoint to these rulers. Rather than being protected by the city, Yahweh is going to bring them out of their false hope and destroy them outside the city. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and the city is the cauldron. But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You shall be brought out of the midst of the Jerusalem, out of the pot. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord God. Brothers, I I think if we miss this, it would be So sad, the imagery here of Yahweh becoming the butcher. Yahweh's presenting himself as the butcher of his proud people. This should not be missed upon us. What Yahweh is doing in this disputation is that he's putting on his apron and he's getting his uh, butcher blade ready. He will bring the sword upon the supposed meats of these elites, but he will first remove them from the pot to do so. Though this is a sobering warning, brothers, I think we can still note the cleverness of God in his pointed word. He wants them to feel the sting of the words. He wants them to feel the torments of these words. He wants them to know, oh, you say this, but I say this. There's almost a tinge of taunting, doesn't it? Yahweh's basically saying, you say you're the meat, but I'm the butcher. Oh, it's brutal. It's clever. It's brilliant. He's he's a a beautiful rhetorician, our God. And in verses 9 and 10, Yahweh elaborates what this butchering will entail. And the false hope of these elites will be completely undone. 
But in verses 11 and 12, Yahweh gives the reason for why they will receive this butchering. The city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst for I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. For, the reason why, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. The reason that these elites are brutalized, brothers, not only in word, but eventually in deed, the reason that these elites will be brutalized by God is because they forsake their God and went after the practices of foreign nations. Rather than pattern their life after Yahweh's law, they sought their beliefs, their attitudes, and their practices from the pagans around them. And it puffed them up. They are well-seasoned meat to be butchered. What I just want to see from this passage, brothers, is that God's word of judgment is pointed as a dagger at the hearts of proud men. Our God sees his people as they really are. He perceives their inward motives. He points at the festering wound and effects of sin, and he calls it as it is. You sinners love your own way and not my way. Confrontation and rebuke like this are hard to receive, is it not? From anyone's hand, let alone Yahweh's. But such words, such harsh words, such criticism and confrontation is hard. It's difficult to receive criticism, especially when you know it's accurate and fair. In in this case, the elites are receiving harsh rebuke as judgment. But God also uses criticism for his people's good. As we saw a few times ago, um, I believe it was two weeks ago, uh, criticism is not inherently a mean thing to do. Our Lord in Revelation 2 and chapter 2 and 3 gave sharp and pointed criticism uh, to the churches. He gave sharp and pointed criticism, not to bully his people or to be cruel, but to show them what sins they need to shirk so that they are able to persevere to the end. So then, brothers, what I want us to see is that a well-placed and poignant word of criticism is the very thing that our Lord uses to bring us out of our spiritual stupor. And we must remember this as well, is that when God is, uh, when Ezekiel is prophesying this, he's not saying it to the uh, inhabitants there. This is a vision. The people who would receive this are in Babylon. They will hear this message and they will be called to repent later. Seeing that this is a humbling text, our application should keep with, some, uh, should keep with the same focus. But criticism should not lead us to our dismay, but further our devotion, brothers. Seeing that this is the last sermon before we start a new year, providing some constructive criticism may do us well as we proceed as a church in hopefully a more beneficial year. Similar to the elites in Jerusalem, the Christian church is often guilty of taking on the personality and ways of the culture that surrounds them. In the American culture, we tend to be naturally good promoters of things that we enjoy. In other words, we're good salesmen. Whether it's your favorite team or hobby, we always seem to build up uh, to our friends to prove uh, that, that our team, our hobby is the best. I mean, I even do this with your kids. It's so ingrained in us. Uh, with your children, I, I, I've literally participated in debates about superheroes. I participated in conversations with your children concerning why Iron Man is better than Captain America. Guys, it's ingrained in us, even from an early age. But sometimes when we're desperate, we start to uh, attack the other options and to, to show their inferiority. We don't want our friends to, to choose that school, that, that club, whatever it is. MSU is clearly the better school because we're not snooty like those old Miss folk, right? And we do this with our church life. We, we do. We say things, I say things, like uh, we're Reformed Baptists. We're not like those regular Baptists. We have traditional worship, not contemporary. We have prayer meetings. Oh, yes, prayer meetings on Wednesday nights, not small groups. Brothers, I'm guilty of this. I'm very guilty of this. I love the fact that we are old school, reformed Baptists with 
a love for the old ways. Amen? Amen? There we go. I love that. I love having this DNA. But sometimes we can go a bit too far. And this is where exactly where we need to be careful and where we may need to hear God's pointed and precise criticism of our body. Often when we build ourselves up, it can be very difficult to hear criticism of the things that we have built up. For example, many of us here will all agree that we have a healthy dynamic at grace. We get along, there's no infighting, there's no problems to cause us major grief. And maybe how we navigated this past year with staying intact and holding services might give us the impression that we handled this year relatively well. That we've done things with some measure of pristine fidelity. But if we think like this, brothers, we may actually puff ourselves up into thinking that we have this church thing figured out when we don't. Just because we don't have major problems doesn't mean that we can't be critiqued. For example, how many of us are willing to say that we have deep relationships with one another? Who can give a hearty amen to that? When was the last time you had a spiritual talk with someone in the church that wasn't Pastor Wynn, me, or your spouse? And I'm not talking about theology, and I'm not arguing about biblical principles. I'm talking about God, honest-to-God fellowship, in which you leave one another convicted in your sins, delighting in the work of God in the church, and excited for the work of ministry. That's what I'm talking about. Brothers, there are more criticisms of our church. I'm delighted that we have grown in our hospitality as a church. That's very important. But have we grown in discipling one another? It's great that we want to welcome people into our church, but do we really want to want them to follow us in the patterns that we have set up here? Do we really want them to look how we are right now? Do the members of this church take up their responsibility, quite simply, to form Christ in one another? Is that something that we are actively, persistently doing as a body? Brothers, I must confess, I have failed. I have failed you in this. Is our kingdom focus evident in our prayer meetings and in our conversations here at church? Another one, do we use our ministerial time and resources effectively and wisely? Or do we just busy ourselves with activities to make us feel spiritual when in fact it does very little for us spiritually at all? If anything, it might frustrate us. Let's not kid ourselves, brothers. Many of our activities and fellowship meals are not all that spiritually engaging. It's just another talk about politics, the latest gossip in Christendom, or possibly just to get some pictures of our kids. Brothers, we, we must ask the question, is this what we're really, is this what we're really, really all about? Is this who we are? We're that kind of church? Brothers, I'm guilty of this. But so are you. So often we do water cooler talk to spend more of our time about, uh, to spend most of our time talking about the business of church like landscape or renovations. But brothers, if we are committed to Christ, if we are committed to Christ and to his glory, we must do better than this. In fact, if we were better disciplined and obedient to God's primary commands to his, about his church, to love his church, the first rebuke of this evening may not have been needed. If we truly knew the makeup of our church and the spiritual calibration of one another because we love one another and we spend time with one another and we talk about spiritual things with one another, maybe we wouldn't be so quick to speak about a divisive issue that would harm my brother or sister. Brothers, are we, we must ask, are we truly a spiritual body? Are we a healthy body? Are we a God-glorifying body? Or have we just sold ourselves a bill of goods? A church that professes unity and love 
when in fact there is no actual evidence of that. Just niceties and pleasantries with the Christian veneer. Brothers, I will leave that with you to ponder. But do not twiddle your thumbs on this issue. It is quite possibly one of the most important that we must think about in this coming year. If we are not careful and diligent to repent in these areas, we may share in the fate of these elites in Jerusalem. You see, the new elites boasted in vainglory. But because of their proud perception of themselves, God humbled them through appointed word. Brothers, if we boast that we have it all together, we should be very careful that we do not puff ourselves up into something that we are not. The Apostle Paul had words for believers such as this, Titus 1. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. And you can read the proud ones, the elites. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Therefore, Paul says to Timothy, or excuse me, Titus, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound. And everyone knows, a little bit of Greek knows this, that word sound means healthy. So that they might be sound, healthy in the faith. Brothers, may we hear this sharp rebuke of Paul and receive it ourselves. May we hear this rebuke so that we too may be sound and healthy as a church. Ponder upon this point, brothers, but do not twiddle your thumbs. Tragically, for these new elites, God's word of judgment would not end in their repentance. As we've seen before, Ezekiel's audience in Babylon would hear God's word of judgment, and they were the ones called to repent. But for those blind in their pride, such as these elites, God's judgment often must, uh, God's uh, judgment must go to great lengths in order to communicate the severity of their sin. And this brings us to our third and final point this evening. God's word is powerful. God's word is powerful. By powerful, I mean that God's word is efficacious. It is able to do all that Yahweh intends for it to do. If God promises judgment, judgment will come. After Yahweh brutalizes these elites with a sharp word and promises judgment, he actually kills one of the men there in Ezekiel's vision. In verse 13 we read, And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah the son of Benaniah died. Then I fell down on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? So then what we're to see is that while, while Ezekiel is reciting the words of Yahweh's speech in verses 5 to 12, Pelatiah, the, Ezekiel's compatriot, we could say, the son of Benaniah dies. But Ezekiel immediately connects it to Yahweh's coming judgment. I enjoy how one commentator put, uh, puts Ezekiel's experience of Pelatiah's death. The prophet immediately grasps the significance of this event. The man's decease functions... The man's dying, Pelatiah's death, functions as a down payment or a deposit of the fate of the leaders announced in the speech. In other words, Ezekiel knew that God was putting his money where his mouth was. This Pelatiah's death would function as an omen for the looming destruction that was going to come when Babylonian would seize Jerusalem for the third and final time. It doesn't matter how secure they thought they were or how fortuitous their lot in life. The one blind in their pride, like these elites, they would experience the painful final word of God's judgment. God has no empty threats, brothers. He means what he speaks. Also notice that Ezekiel doesn't give us a description of what the 25 men did in response to Pelatiah's death. Shock and awe are glaringly absent from these elites in Ezekiel's vision. As we'll see next time in verses 14 to 22, verses 14 to 22 will act as a glimmer of hope in this relatively bleak section of chapters 8 to 11 of Ezekiel. Chapters 8 to 11 are the final indictment and judgment of Yahweh against his idolatrous people in Jerusalem. And it culminates in verses 22 and 25 when the presence of God is removed from the temple. 
God was going to destroy his idolatrous people and lead them in their sin. Even though God's word is deadly serious, the proud do not listen. Even with a powerful sign of coming judgment, we see no trembling before Yahweh. For men such as this, for those blind in pride, brothers, God's final word is simply that, final. Their destruction comes for them. Brothers, I want you to take this with you whenever you read Ezekiel again in this coming year. Remember that these terrifying judgments are coming upon God's people. In a book, in the book of Ezekiel, God's judgment can be characterized in two in two ways. There's judgments for Israel and judgment for the nations. That's it. Virtually every commentator recognizes that the ending of Ezekiel 11 is the lowest point in Israel's history. And I want us to note that these severe judgments that we have been studying these past few weeks are not for the nations. Chapters 8 to 11 are not for the nations. They are for God's people. They are not for the unbelievers, but for those who took up the name of Yahweh and blasphemed it. Brothers, it is easy to apply judgment text to unbelievers, is it not? Quick way, quick way to, to get a, a, a preaching point. We know, according to God's word, where they will stand on that last day. That's evident. But brothers, for persons who wears the banner of Christian, but is too proud to submit to God's word, he should be very fearful on that last day. As our confession teaches, even among the purest of churches, there may be a mixture of those who live in unbelief or unbelieving practices. I'm not saying I'm suspicious of anyone here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not suspicious of anyone being a false convert or anything like that. Don't worry. I'm not lining up any metaphorical torches for the pagan in our midst. That's not the plan. From my relationship with you all, I have no reason to doubt anyone's profession of faith. But I do want us to be conscious of the reality that unbelief and infidelity are always much closer to our hearts than what we may see in ourselves. Idolatry and infidelity are always right there, brothers. On this side of heaven for us, it's always there. We might not view ourselves as proud, but we may act like it if we are too complacent in our spiritual habits. The elites in Jerusalem were complacent because they thought danger could never reach them. For us, there are dangers that true Christians must be vigilant against. We should never be so proud as to think that these dangers could not affect us. These dangers pervade our spiritual landscape, brothers. In our day and age, to, de- to neglect meeting together and not prioritizing fellowship is commonplace in American evangelicalism. Spiritual practices like daily prayer and meditation on God's word is sorely lacking in many Christians' lives. I'm sure even within our brothers and sisters in this church. And we've seen this morning morning that diligent discipleship of our children should be the norm in our homes. But we know that this is not a reality for some. There are so many other dangers, brothers. These are just the immediate ones that came to mind. All of us are prone to spiritual lethargy. We all are. It's all close to our hearts. And this is why we must be warned. The servant who buried and did nothing with the deposit given to him was rebuked more severely by the master. He calls him a wicked and slothful servant, and he places him in the outer darkness, Matthew 25. And the branch that does not produce fruit will be cut off, John 15. If our Lord has given us so many spiritual riches, why do we so often bury our devotion and love in the things of this world? Why do we foolishly squander and waste the blessings our God has given us to enjoy? Because we are at this point of the year where people make resolutions. The new year is coming and people are trying to get out of those nasty habits and pick up some healthy ones. Here are are my resolutions. and Maybe some of these will be for you. For all of us here, we need to make the resolution to follow Jesus more closely and more faithfully, ridding that sin that sits so close in our hearts from us. 
We need to heed the dangers of not fully following after Christ. We need to heed the dangers of a slothful Christianity. We must be resolved to follow Christ, lest we too are cast in the other darkness. For those who might be in a spiritual valley here tonight, for those who might not have a concern over their soul, for others, or for those who have been negligent over their souls, I exhort you to repent and turn to Christ. Turn to Him in true faith. It is only by clinging tightly to Him, it is only clinging tightly to Christ that we will be saved on that last day. But just as God's Word is powerful in His judgment, brothers, God's Word, God's word abounds in strength through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. For those who find no strength in themselves to pull themselves out of the spiritual stupor. No, brothers, for those blind in their spiritual walk, our God has provided you the word of the cross that you might receive sight. Ah, the gospel gives us strength, brothers. Our Christ has called you to cling to him, brothers. Our Christ calls you to cling to him, yes, because he clings to you. Brothers, the message of Christ coming to save sinners from our blind pride is the power that enables us to humbly follow him. So then, brothers, be resolved to follow Christ. Be resolved to follow Christ as his blood-brought disciples. Be resolved to delight yourself in your sanctification. Be resolved not to bury the spiritual disciplines that Christ has purchased for you, but bury yourself in them and arise in the presence of God's glory. Be resolved because our Christ was resolved in doing the will of his Father for the salvation of his people, for you, brothers and sisters. He was resolved. He was resolved to save you by going upon that brutal cross, by receiving the word of condemnation, that brutal word of condemnation in your place. And he has called you to be resolved to pick up your cross daily and follow him. Be resolved, brothers, to keep your spirit and your soul and your body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Let us pray. Father, though we have been undone, and though we are to feel the sting and judgment of your word, Lord, your gospel gives us power to move on, to go further, to follow after you in truer and greater fidelity. Help us, O oh Father, in our spiritual blind and pride, proud stupor. Lift us out of that bog, Father, that we might live for you all the more in greater grace and in greater glory. And this is only possible with your Son clinging to us tightly. Thank you for that reality of a Christ who loves even the worst of sinners such as us. Lord, keep us faithful and keep us holy. We ask this in your Son's holy, holy, holy name. Amen.